now I'm proficient. Now I can, I can mobilize, I can manip, I can do soft tissue, I can do a various exercise forms from whatever school of thought that you're looking for. But sometimes people still don't get better. Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoy today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. All right, guys, welcome back. I am joined by Dr. Brandon Fredhoff. Fredhoff, right? Yep, Fredhoff. And uh, to give you guys a little bit of context, just to kick this thing off, today we're, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, continuing education as a physical therapist. You graduate school, you might not know quite what you're doing all the time in terms of how to apply some of the stuff that you learned in the textbooks to the real world situation, whether that's a unique population, like for myself and precision seeing sports athletes and not necessarily having learned a ton about that unique specialty in school, or just in the real life context of managing paperwork at the same time as treating and multiple people at once and all of the other kind of administrative pieces of treating where you may feel like there's a gap. And that gap oftentimes is filled with continuing education courses that you can go out and take as weekend courses or as something that is a continuous kind of enrollment that you're learning a little bit more through mentorship about. Um, Or, you know, there are formal residency or fellowship options. And to give you guys context on a little bit about who Brandon is relative to me and to Precision, um, I am currently undergoing a residency training through Jefferson University here in Philly. And as part of that, I get linked up with multiple different mentors over the course of the year who kind of help me guide. And all of these mentors are folks who have gone through either residency or fellowship training themselves. Brandon is currently my mentor. So we've spent about 25, 30 hours together at this point. And um, so I'm going to let Brandon tell you guys a little bit about him, his background, and then we'll get into, you know, maybe some of the ways that he and I have both seen and explored in terms of continuing education or refining your skills after school. So just open up, tell him a little bit about your background. Okay. So uh, I uh, graduated from Widener University's DPT program in 2015. So I was kind of going through uh, during the program and like, like everybody, you get exposed to different different angles of what you would want to do, potentially inpatient, outpatient, uh, neuro, ortho, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I started, I was thinking really about like what, what did I want to do at the end? I've always kind of had a strong bias towards orthopedics. Um, and uh, actually, so after I had one of my, uh, when I, I did my fellowship, I had obviously to go through mentorship also. One of the, my uh, mentors from that was from, he came in and did an adjunct kind of faculty thing with a manipulation class. So I was watching kind of the way he was doing things and I was just like, and he just had a really good handle, really good skill on it. And uh, you know, at that part, when you're in those ortho classes, you're like kind of set, you're looking at it and you're be like, wow, like I'm supposed to be feeling this or telling me I should be doing this, but I'm not like seeing it. I feel, you feel underprepared. You're, you, you haven't had, you don't have any experience yet. So, uh, 
at the end of uh, graduation, 2015, I was like, I want to, I want to set off. I want to, I want to continue learning. I want to continue doing things. I want to have that handle. So as we know, when we graduate, we're, we really don't know anything about anything. We, we're generalist in the sense to where we, we know things from a textbook. We have had patient cases. We've done some um, clinical fills. But we, when we see that first chronic pain patient, that persistent pain patient, or somebody that just doesn't fit that textbook, you're, you're really, really lost on what you want to do. So through those continued experiences, I, I, I joined... Um, evidence emotions manual therapy certification program and that was a year-long program it was, it's built like the residency except without the mentoring but there was an option to do pre-fellowship so then i went into their fellowship program as well looking to to venture into that and figuring out how to reason through some of these things get that confidence to be able to treat and uh just be prepared for whatever scenario comes in so for you was it it sounds like it was almost more the hands-on side or the patient interaction side that spurred your interest in, you know, potentially pursuing other forms of education. Um, that's different than for me. For me, it, when I looked around, it, it felt like, you know, I, I'm going through school and I'm not getting a great grasp on really how to continue to learn throughout my career in terms of what is the best current evidence, the best practice? How do I use research, use studies to inform what I'm doing? And then I would look around and it was like, you know, the people who've gone through residency or fellowship seem to be the ones who know, you know, who can speak the language of, you know, oh, well, this article in 2012 published by this author, you know, shed some light on this topic. And then I'm like, huh, this person actually seems to, you know, cite primary research. And that's kind of what brought me more towards con ed. But it sounds like for you, it was maybe more seeing the proficiency of, you know, a fellowship trained clinician or an, at least an advanced trained clinician. Is that yeah. kind of fair to say? And honestly, I had that and I'm sure a lot of people get it. I wanted to, I had that like want and need to get every single person better and kind of you and I was, it was very ev intervention. It was very intervention based to where if this intervention didn't work for somebody, I wanted to know the intervention that did. So it's like mm. kind of at that point to where you're, again, you're, you're thinking that there's a magic bullet for everything. You're and you are not satisfied unless everybody's walking out of here 100 percent better. So that's what kind of started that chase to where like, OK, now I'm proficient. Now I can I can mobilize. I can manip. I can do soft tissue. I can do a various exercise forms from whatever school of thought that you're looking for. But sometimes people still don't get better. So the cool thing from that was learning, learning more of the reasoning, learning more of the things that actually matter. It was like instead of chasing interventions and these these magical things that are going to get people better, I then fell into the whole. Let's talk about prognostic factors. Let's talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about psychosocial and expectations and all those all those different realms and that overall reasoning piece. So I think it, it's it's not a good way to go to just look for a certain intervention to help everybody because that's obviously not going to help everyone. But it's all but it's from these from fellowship I learned about the reasoning part. When is this intervention going to work versus this intervention, or when is this this education going to work versus this education. So that's really what I came away with from it mm. afterwards. 
yeah, I feel like sometimes you can get in a in a mindset, especially early on, that you're just kind of grasping for straws, trying to figure out what is the the technique that's going to solve the problem. And yep. it's hard to step back and look at the big picture and see the whole kind of patient case, the whole person, the individual, and everything that's influencing what they're feeling. And then understanding that even with that big picture, there's a lot of just uncertainty in terms of what medicine knows about you know a lot of conditions and about pain and then you getting comfortable managing that uncertainty was definitely something that even for myself like going through and still obviously i'm still early on in the residency process i'm still going through and i'm like you know it's it's a difficult it's a difficult kind of sphere to navigate when you you don't know what you don't know versus what isn't known Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how much should i really be shooting for the next thing the next technique or the next you know and, and is this something that is known you know you look around and a lot of people claim to have the answers for what the fix is yeah and you know they have more experience than you as a young clinician and you're wondering are they right like do they actually have the silver bullet do they have the thing and i've just been missing it um or are they you know full of shit and they don't actually know what they're talking about or they're yeah. selling you know, kind of snake oil. So that's, that's definitely something that resonates with me in terms of the challenge there. Yeah. And I think, um, as, as many benefits as like social media can have in terms of free resources and things like that, I also think it could be, have that opposite negative effect because you have people, people can set the context, the mood they can have. You see all these videos of these like instant changes and stuff. And it is obviously very possible to get a, a session within change from a technique and everybody has that wow moment. But I think as new grads, if staying on the topic of what we're, what this podcast is about, it's, it's, you need guidance to like, which, what are, are you doing something that's going to be worthwhile versus again, you're seeing these snake oil type things because I mean, some of these places charge thousands of dollars to be certified. There's tools involved. There's just, and then there's recertification all for things that, when you really think about it, you don't, there's really not much reasoning that needs to be done with it. Right. Because as we know, a lot of these things are non-specific techniques. So it's like, why am I paying thousands of dollars to be specific on something that's non-specific? Right. So you have your certain Twitter gurus and you have your other people that are, that have the answer to everything, which we know is not evidence-based or true. And it's a lot of priming content, contextual factors and, uh, and placebo, honestly, so things like the residency program and fellowship, and they're all not created equal either, but at least a lot of times you're dealing with acad- academics, you're dealing with people that, have, that are using evidence-based things. So it's, it's almost like there's a, there needs to be some tool to help. It's almost like with the right literature, you almost got to, because everything has bias and everything has flaws, it's a, you need some tool to be able to pick, okay, what's grading almost like con ed courses, grading like is this... Uh, is this something that's going to be viable? Is this something I want to kind of, because as a, you're fresh out of school, you, you can be basically turned into whatever you want at that point and right. go whatever direction. So I think it's a good, a big decision. Yeah. And, and, you know, it does kind of arm you with a filter now that you can, any new information that comes in, you can put through your, you know, your residency, your fellowship filter and say like, Hey, does this fit with 
the criteria that I know would need to be met in order to be, you know, a plausible explanation? Is, is the person who's giving me this technique providing maybe some mechanistic evidence? Are they combining that with some actual efficacy or effectiveness trials? Like, are they presenting the information that one would need to present in order to coerce or, you know, convince me or you to accept a certain treatment as being like a viable option. Mm -hmm. And what you find out, especially as you're going through is, hmm, many of the things that I have formerly thought were an effective strategy or an effective technique or an effective system actually doesn't really pass the tests. You know, they're, they're not meeting the criteria. And then you realize, hmm, that's why the evidence comes out and doesn't necessarily support a lot of that stuff. Um, but, you know, we kind of use the the terms residency and or fellowship interchangeably to some extent when we're talking. But there's obviously a difference between the two. I honestly don't think I'm fully equipped to differentiate between what a residency versus a fellowship is. Do you have any insight on you know the difference if someone doesn't? Because you didn't do a residency. I didn't. Yeah, the, ma- the manual therapy... Um, certification for evidence of motion was the same format as the residency, except okay. I didn't have the, it wasn't necessarily primed for the OCS uh, okay. at the end and there was no mentoring, but okay. the, we were, I was in the same classes as the uh, evidence of motion uh, residents at the time. Okay. So what would you, if someone were to ask you, you know, what's the difference between a residency and a fellowship, which should I do? What would you say? So I'm usually... So, some of the like for for evidence of motion which is now bell and college uh their fellowship program um they there was a, you had to get your ocs to be part to to actually graduate with your fellowship okay. so i know there's some uh, i believe mti uh, and i could be outdated so don't take my word on this but you can just get your fellowship hmm. but um so the residency, the, the main difference that I would say from it, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to get the OCS, you should do a residency. I don't see the value in studying some books and be good at test taking and then being able to be better clinically from it. I just don't see how that works. So I think it's a logical step to do the residency first. That's where you get your background to a lot of these things. You get the advanced, you get advanced clinical decision making beyond what you would get coming out of school. You you get the uh, all the kind of some some good evidence, some so a lot of guidance towards how you're supposed to do things at a high level and kind of a more organized and beneficial approach to the patient. So fellowship, the big difference from that, a fellowship can be done in two or three years. It's a more vigorous program. Um, there's practicals, and I'm speaking just for Bell and College or Evidence in Motion. I was kind of I was with them during that split, so it's uh, there's there's practicals. There's a lot of you, you do you actually do some TAing, which is kind of a really cool experience, where you'll go to their weekend classes and you'll be one of the teachers there to help. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mentoring, just like a residency would, but uh, there's. And then you have like your, your actual practicals you have to pass at the end. There's, there's just a lot of scholarly things. I think it can kind of highlight some of the academia stuff if you want to go on that route after. But it's, it's kind of funny in the fact that, that the fellowship is FAAOMPT, so Fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy. What I, my experience was is that manual therapy, even though it's in the name of it, it was kind of just a tool that you get the the 
things that you get advanced with is the clinical decision making. Mm. That that was the by far the most valuable part. Also, too, we talked about a little bit in the beginning about how you you want to feel ready for that complex case. You want to be able to work under stress and do things. The fellowship was very much meant to challenge your biases and challenge your comfortability because that's what's going to get you to change. So it's very intensive and there was a lot of pressure. It is something you can fail out of. So I think that was, those are the main advantages. You get like, even like hearing yourself talk, which I could, if I go listen to this, I'm used to it now, but you videotape yourself and you get, you have these very high level experienced teachers that'll give you feedback along with all your classmates. You learn together, you get, uh, you get grilled together and it kind of gets you ready for any situation. Um, so a long-winded answer to what you said before is I feel like you take a lot of the residency principles and then you're just you're just in the clinical world with it. And you're when are you using this? How are you using this kind of thing? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, to your point of like the the it's funny when people mention the OCS because, you know, I went into residency really with the OCS on like at the back of my mind because people will criticize and we can maybe get into this you know, residency or fellowship processes as, as an additional expense in their education with no, what they quote as being no financial return on their investment. Um, and, you know, part of that criticism, and I, I think about that is, you know, the OCS doesn't necessarily give you a financial return having those letters behind your name, no. um, but the residency will, you know, improve your clinical decision-making, improve your awareness of current evidence. I think the focus should probably be on those advancements rather than, you know, exclusively financial advancements. But I almost never even think about the OCS exam. Sometimes I forget that it's even a part of the process and that I'll be taking that at the end. Because for me, that's just such a backseat type of thought. And for me, the actual residency process is where the benefit is, it has nothing to do with the letters that you get. And, and I even know some, some individuals who've, you know, gone through residency and never took the exam. They probably would have had an extremely high likelihood of passing it. And they just chose not to take it because they, they felt like, you know, it, it's part of, you know, maybe a little bit of an ego component to have the letters. Um, and you want to be able to maybe communicate to employers. I have done this advanced training very simply, and those letters can do that. But at the end of the day, that's not what you gain from the, the residency or the fellowship process at all. Um, really what you gain is, is like, you know, everything you kind of alluded to in terms of refining your decision-making and your, your skills. Um, then getting back to a little bit more of the finance piece, Obviously, you know, evidence in motion, I think most people look at that and have associated that with having a pretty high cost mm -hmm. um, for the residency. I'm not sure how the fellowship works in terms of cost. You know, I'm fortunate at Jefferson that I think among many residencies, Jefferson is well within what I thought was a very good return on your investment because the investment actually financially comparative to a lot of other programs is incredibly low. Um, and so, you know, for me that that was an attractive option because I felt like, you know, I'm not investing a ton financially and I feel like what I'm getting back is probably worth twice what I'm putting in. And so that felt like a no brainer to me. Um, 
but talk a little bit about maybe the cost of that as part of your education and then maybe what you feel like the return is from a clinical side but you know more on the financial aspects in terms of career advancement yeah and and it's a good question it depends on too like what you're looking to get back Doctors don't know what an OCS is. Doctors don't care what a FAOMPT is. Like they, that doesn't, so by just simply going to your employer like that and just being like, okay, I did this, look, I took this test, give me a $5,000 raise. It just doesn't, it's not applicable. And it's really at that point, it's it's such a, it's, it's almost a, it's just a waste at that point. You have all this opportunity to learn and do better and you just, you're worried about the alphabet soup at the end of your name. Um, so, and I would argue, it depends on what you really look at as what's a return on investment for these things. So for you at Jefferson, I mean, your network has grown immediately, especially because what I've seen from it being exposed to it and uh, being talking to Chris, who obviously is doing a great job with it, but you now have the, you now have your classmates and your, and Chris and the other faculty that are helping you. They're now in your network. So that alone creates more opportunities. Um, so if you're, the more people, you know, the more good people, you know, the more like-minded people, you know, the more opportunity there is like, even, even for me in sense of this, if I didn't go through that stuff, being on this podcast right now, I wouldn't be on a podcast. So I, you, you gotta do things and check your ego because there's bad of everything. There's a lot of OC, there's fellows that, uh, I mean, probably aren't up to snuff, snuff because they, they do things to completion and they stop. They want the letters because it looks cool. There's not as many, but then they stop doing things after. So then you, you lose all the stuff that you've learned. So the, the cost I think is, I mean, when you look at it from a, from just a numbers perspective, I mean, you're talking thousands more dollars after most of us are in a, a lot of debt already to start. But you're you you should look at the points where this creates like endless opportunities for things. You there you need you need to think outside the box in terms of that. There's there's academia you can do, and not a, you don't have to do your PhD or anything like that. You can be an adjunct. You can help with classes. You're going to meet the people and develop the skills to be able to do that. Because you know, the worst thing, you don't ever want to go in a class and have the students be looking at you to teach them something. You have no idea what you're doing either. But you have your OCS, so it looks good. Um, money can't be the driver with any of this stuff. You have to, and I know that that's kind of easy to say, but it should it should be an experiential thing. It should be an outcomes thing. Because there was even, in regards to the OCS and fellowship, there's actually studies done to look at like outcomes and the fellows have a really good level of outcomes. And then uh, the Evidence in Motion group, I mean, Mark Shepard and all just did one, kind of addressing exactly what you were just saying about the return on investment to where they were, they, it was like a survey of graduated fellows from the program. They looked at salary and stuff, but they also looked at things like opportunities and just, it's just other things that would not be there if you didn't do the fellowship. So if you're trying to advance a progression, uh, a profession, if you're trying to get PT reputation up, because we obviously know we have a lot to offer, but we probably are a little undervalued compared to other things, medications and surgeries and all that stuff. You're, if you're the more like-minded, skilled people that are continuous learners, that are doing evidence-based things, evidence-informed things that's for the patient, the better the profession is going to be as a whole, which is going to help us be more community, people be more aware in the community for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I obviously have this conversation 
fairly often because either students are in the clinic or you know some of my peers who didn't do a residency will always bring this up as the number one criticism and again i think that when you look at residencies and fellowships there are some i applied to one i applied to jefferson i didn't apply to a single other one because jefferson i went there for school i knew chris keating who's the residency director i knew the quality of the residency and i knew the price and i look at other residencies that you know hey we're going to pay you 30 Two thousand dollars. The rest, of the residency is free. We pay you thirty-two thousand dollars. You're paying thirty plus thousand dollars for that residency by losing, you know, that that salary. To me, that didn't seem like a fair exchange. And so I was like, hey, let me go a model where I can work full time. I get a full salary from a company. I do that independently, and then I can pay for the residency out of pocket at a rate that I found was valuable. Right. $30,000 to me didn't seem, that's another year of school, you know, yeah. in terms of tuition there. That's I didn't see the return on the investment from that end. So I said, I want to work a full salary. I want to get paid. And then I will pay out of pocket what I, you know, deem to be a worthy investment. And in my situation, it was less than $10,000. I felt like that was very much worth the, the year of education. And so I was like, let's do it. But again, like I didn't apply to all of them. I didn't apply to anyone actually other than Jefferson because I was confident in the investment that was going like that I was going to get myself into. Um, but again, like this is one of the things that my peers will often bring up. And I'm like, first of all, not every residency is created equal. I don't back residencies as a wise financial decision across the board. I think I would, you know, you'd have to be very particular with which ones you are considering as, you know, being worthy of, of the finances there. But then the other things, like you mentioned, if you're thinking of it in an isolated circumstance where I work at this clinic, you know, maybe it's an ATI, a Novacare or whatever, this big corporate company or even a small company at the end of my residency process, are they going to automatically give me more money? No, probably not. No. Um, you know, maybe there's a slight chance that they... They give you a bonus of $1,000. They pay for the exam or something like that. Yeah. But within that one company at your current job, they are probably not going to pay you any more money. And that's what folks look at when they think, hey, it's not worth it because I'm not going to make any more money next year when I'm done. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the stuff that you are saying is what I try to encourage people to consider that maybe you don't make more money right now, but how many doors are open oh, yeah. that you will be able to you know, walk through as opportunities over the next 20 years that you wouldn't have otherwise had, whether that's from the people that you meet. And sure, you can network outside of it. I would argue that probably your networking is maybe either not going to happen because you're busy working a full-time job and it happens very naturally and you know easily within a cohort. Um, but you know through the networking, you're meeting people, you're having more connections, um, and that's associated with a residency or a fellowship process. But at the same time, most, you know, academic institutions, they do have a wall. And to get beyond that wall, typically you need some kind of advanced training. Mm -hmm. You can't have just graduated DPT school and have zero additional training. And that wall is a, you know, a wall that if you can climb over is financially lucrative to some degree, either as an adjunct, you know, making good money on the side or, you know, as a faculty member at some point down the line, that's another financial incentive 
that provides opportunities to make more money that you probably wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, and then one of the, I think, under-recognized or undervalued instances is like, maybe your employer doesn't pay you more even though you're a better clinician, but being a better clinician can make you more money if you decide to go into your own practice or do something on the side, cash or whatever. Um, and so those folks who've gone through residency and fellowship processes are probably better for it in general and will probably more easily be able to charge $200 an hour for a cash-based rate or be able to create other revenue streams such as their own educational content, their own you know social media content, their own continuing education you know course or book or podcast or you know programming and mentorship like all of these other passive or you know other active income streams that become available to you are there in part because of your clinical excellence that you developed throughout the course of the residency and fellowship so Again, like when you isolate it down and look at the one salary in the one job, know that employer is probably not going to give you a raise for having completed it. But when you step back and look at the big picture, there's probably going to be ways that you can monetize this improved value that you've developed over the course of the years um, through that learning process that will give you a return on your investment. And that's without even acknowledging the fact that your ethical obligation to try to maximize your patient's health is going to be satisfied to a degree that you couldn't have probably done without it. From the standpoint, like there's value in helping people get out of pain more efficiently and better. You know, like yeah. we take the financial incentives away and there's incentives to actually be a good healthcare provider. And if you look at, you know, surgeons who give harmful narratives, physicians who, you know, give recommendations not to exercise when someone's in pain and you look down on those providers as not being up to date. Hey, how do they not know what PTs do? And like, how do they not see the value in my profession? You're going to be one of them if you don't continue to learn over the course of your career. It's just a waiting game. You wait 10 to 15 years, 20 years, you will be one of those physicians in your profession now and exactly. you know the residency and fellowship process it's not just the year or the two years that you're in it it gives you the skills to stay up to date to stay current to and again i'm not blanketly applying this to all residencies and all fellowships but like we get back to this main point of there's just more there than a raise at the end of the year yeah, that's just that's simple minded i mean and, and to your points earlier when we talk network it's not just colleagues it's patients so you give somebody a really good experience guess if you if you try to open up your own cash-based clinic those people are going to come with you i mean you're building up people start to trust you you gain that rapport um so the network is just un invaluable because it also makes it to where like if you don't go and do something extra like this you're basically stuck in the clinic i'm trying to think of other options that you would be able to do. 
and there's not many. So you're if you're planning to on treating till you're 70 years old or something, a lot of people like new challenges and things like that. So with these other opportunities, you you start to make it to where now you have options. Yeah, I'm burnt out. I'm tired of seeing 20 patients or tired of seeing 60 patients every week. I want to see one an hour. I want to see one every 45, whatever you want to do with that. You have the ability to pivot. You want to get into academia and do some things like that. You want to, there, you want to start a con ed program. It's, you have options that are not going to be there otherwise. So I, I think my, I keep going back to the network because I really think that's the most, um, the, the biggest benefit. And then let's be honest too. It's almost like we're colleges too. Like if, Say like me and you both went to went to Temple or somewhere some college and all that. There's people that go to the same schools and say, do the same things tend to have almost like a little fraternity kind of thing going on. And I know seeing some fellows and stuff like that, it's they they've struggled through the process and they kind of when you struggle through something, you graduate through something, and you then have that likeness in in common. So that's more opportunities for that. Like Evidence in Motion emails me all the time. I'm Bell in college now. They email me all the time. There's always opportunities. There's always networks to get together. And you start to, you get hooked up with some really, really intelligent people that you wouldn't otherwise be talking with. You can bounce ideas off of them. It's just really a, at first when you're making that payment and you're putting that down payment on and you're looking at a physical price, 15000 20000 whatever, it looks like, oh, this is a lot of money that I could do something else with. But how old are you, Max? 25. 25. I'm 32. So we are at that point to where, I mean, you're going to be finishing the residency at 25 or 26. I'm finished. I have my OCS and fellowship at uh, at, at uh, 32. Now, like all that's kind of in the past now. So now I'm looking at like all these opportunities that I'm going to continue to be able to do now without, and I have all these resources of people to call, all this knowledge I can try to get creative with and do something with. So you got to look, you got to think long term. It can't just be like, hey, uh, employer, I'm, I'm getting my fellowship. Like I'm going to be coming back to talk to you once I graduate because I want a yeah. little bit more. That's just, that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah, that tends to be kind of a narrow, narrow view of, of what you might gain from it. But again, like this, I'm going through residency, you've been through the fellowship um, and a residency-esque kind of process. So both of us are probably a little biased in, yeah. you know, confirming, hey, we made the right decision to do, to do this. So, um, you know, obviously we need to recognize, like I mentioned, not all residencies and, and fellowships are created equal. Some of them may not be worth your money. Some of them may not even give you the skills that we've been referencing in terms of like thought processes and the ability to stay current. So kind of going a little bit to the other side and, and playing devil's advocate against some of what we've already said, who may be someone who comes to you who you would recommend against doing a fellowship or against a residency? Maybe that's not a long-term recommendation, but even in the short term, or, or what are some of the cons that you would you would quote? So I would say experience is a, so I did this exact thing. I went to the the adjunct teacher that I had at Widener and uh, I asked him right out of school. I was just like, I asked him about the fellowship right away. And his advice was, was really good. Work a little bit. You got to get experience because a lot of these things, if you don't have a frame, uh, a frame of like any like frame of reference for these things, you don't know what you're reasoning from 
one thing or because everything that you get from that point on is going to be just new, new, new. So you don't have these situations where you can look back on. You don't have that time in the clinic to where you're you're on your own. You don't have a CI with you or anybody and you have to like figure everything out first. You have to have a frame of reference. You have to gain some experience before you go in. A residency, I don't think that applies as much. I think, because you're going to be treating the whole time you're in residency and as you would with a fellowship. But I think the the residency, again, is giving you those advanced basics, I would call them. Mm-hmm. It's like that at saying experts do the basics well. Like it's giving you that framework to work with. It's giving you kind of a system that you can do before you take that into a larger kind of more specified thing like the fellowship. Um, so I think working a little bit, getting your feet yeah. wet, because you really got to learn on your own at that, that first point. Also, too, somebody, and this is kind of going along, I wanted to address what you said before about not, how not all these things are created equal. Just from being an Evidence, Emotion, and Bell and College's fellowship program, I've been exposed to other and aware of other fellowships. Like you said, you have to do your research. So here's the thing, if you're somebody that's looking to get an exercise perspective, there's one fellowship that is very, a lot of them will be very manual based though, because again, it's in the name. Um, It's gonna be dry needling and manipulation and clinical decision making. Another one's gonna be very biomechanics driven, but also with clinical decision making in terms of what manual to do here. Then you have for Bellin, I was very impressed because it had the it had the biopsychosocial kind of thing going on to where you had you took all the realms. We got some we got some biomechanical stuff, which I know is falling out of favor, but it's useful at times for the right patient. You got the neurotype, the neurophysiologic type stuff, so you can clinical decision make off of that, and then just all the social and health kind of things. So that would be my my other thing. My advice would be like. Know what you're looking to get. And I mean, I know at that point you're looking to learn and you don't really know what's out there. But do your research on what you're getting yourself into. Have a goal in mind of what you want to do and and, and readapt as you continue to do it. So I would say the two big things are experience and, and, and research. If you're somebody that also maybe struggles in a certain realm, it just... It just depends if you're not... The one thing too, I think people are burned out after PT school a little bit. And they just rush into things. So I think taking the time to kind of gather yourself, which is where kind of taking a little break before you jump into these things may be a good thing. Yeah, I, I feel like that's always a difficult one because there's such pros and cons to, you know, like one when I remember when I was asking everyone about residency, you know, I was at Jefferson. I was interested in Jeff's residency. So I was asking some of the current residents and, you know, these were people that maybe, I, you know, like one guy in, in particular, Kyle Carlson, um, who treats in the kind of Jersey area. He was someone that I would go to the gym with and I would see him there with lift weights. It was more casual. And, you know, he recommended to me, like, just do it right out of school. Just mm-hmm. go straight into it. And maybe that recommendation is different for residency than fellowship. Mm-hmm. But as we know with a lot of stuff, if you give yourself time to get out of the, you know, student mode or the school mode, then maybe the likelihood that you will be willing to pick back up and engage in that, you know, maybe that that likelihood decreases a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so on one hand, having the experience will benefit you from the standpoint of having more more you know time more patient interactions to reflect upon and to inform you know your weaknesses and strengths but at the other hand 
the likelihood that you end up willing to take on another bill and willing to, you know, change maybe your lifestyle to go back towards being more committed to education, that might be tough to do three years out of, of school. And, you know, on the other side, it's difficult right after school because you're, like you said, burnt out and been pretty exhausted. For me, that was part of the reason that, again, Jefferson, and I don't, this isn't an ad for Jefferson, but, <laughs> you know, some residencies you will treat 20 hours a week, others you'll treat 30 hours a week. And in my case, you treat 40 hours a week because your employment is separate from the residency to, to some degree. So, you know, for me, that was a benefit that, hey, I'm a new grad, I don't have a ton of experience, but at least I'm getting 40 hours of treatment per week right out of school and doing the residency at the same time. Whereas I felt like, you know, if I'm only seeing 20 hours a week, how much am I going to be able to really actively be be applying these concepts? And so that was another consideration when we when we talk about like selecting or balancing, you know, one or the other. So let's say someone, you know, they took time out of they took time off after school. Maybe they wanted to originally go back and do a residency fellowship, but they're at a point where for whatever reason in their life, that's just not practical. You know, maybe they, they do have a lot of debt. They're trying to pay that down. There's maybe family things that are being introduced, kids, travel, and they just, it just isn't practical for them to do a residency or fellowship. Um, but they still want to embody, you know, being a lifelong learner and maximizing their skills as a clinician. What might be some like alternative things that someone can do to sharpen that skill, sharpen their their you know clinical decision making. We always we always want to be reading papers. Um, that goes to your further point too. We need to also understand strengths and weaknesses of papers to be able to say if it's good because there's a lot of there's so much bias in them and there's no perfect study design, um, especially with the intervention type things and all. So you have to. If, you, if you're confident in your ability to synthesize the take-home points while also taking away the weaknesses, that's probably the best, the best way. There's a lot of free – if you're an APTA member, you get JOSPT free. They have a ton of great articles um, that, again, you can learn from by ripping them apart and saying this needs to be better or taking, taking good value from it. Also PubMed and all those too, you'll get a lot of free, free articles for it. And, and you can also email, if somebody has a subscription to it, obviously, just feel free to, I'm trying to get this article kind of thing. So that's the easiest way. Um, the other resource that I found to be really helpful, and I believe it's only $200 for the year, is MedBridge. Hmm. So MedBridge has is a huge video, like online kind of learning thing. You get CEUs for it. They have anyone that's writing papers probably has some type of video on MedBridge. Mm. So you can do that right from the comfort of your own house. You can satisfy some licensure things. $200 is not a lot. And most of the time, your company probably would pick it up for your con ed. Um, I've had that several times. That's That was really good. And then almost creating your own little internal network kind of thing. So you have, you're probably working with other PTs depending on the company. Start uh, and and obviously the social media stuff. I'll get to that point next. But with your with your colleagues, see what take learn from each other. Like you got new things to talk about. You can talk out 
uh, difficult cases with each other using the research, almost like a so case management type stuff, take some time to practice techniques and all that stuff and use each other's strengths to make each other better. Um, and then there's a lot of free resources on social media. It can be bad in ways, but it can be great because you can follow some of the best names. Again, academia, you have other people that really just synthesize the research really good and they've developed their own con ed stuff too. You just, again, be careful with people's biases. Uh, anybody that's a guru kind of thing can has a downside as well. But just take the good from whatever you can. And creating a Twitter, you could just follow a bunch of names and you'll get new articles that are showing up like every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and new videos and things you can use. So those would be, I think, the easiest ways without going into that type of program to uh, continue doing your learning. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I, I agree even in just my short kind of short-lived experience trying to, you know, be in the loop with what is evidence-based, what's up-to-date. I, I think that, you know, again, like going back to the residence fellowship process, obviously you get trained on how to critically analyze papers, how to read research. That's not something that I think that, you know, when I was in PT school, going through the curriculum and looking around in in my class that's not something that you learned how to do unless you really tried um most people it's like you know i'll read the paper to do the presentation or write the essay or or whatever um but i don't necessarily have a really good grasp on research how to read it where to find it and unfortunately like i think that you know that's the most important skill that you, one of the most, it's in terms of continuing education and staying current, there's nothing that's more important. Um, and the, the issue is that there's a learning curve associated with it. And if I were to hand you, you know, a stack of studies, not you personally, but someone who maybe just graduated PT school, most PT students or new grads being handed a stack of articles would have very close to no idea how to really read them, dissect them, and what to gather from them. But once you get to the point that you've rehearsed that skill enough, and you know maybe that takes a year of you reading one paper a week to really start to get in a, in a rhythm and in a groove of like, ah, I know what to look for in the introduction. I kind of know, you know, I know this, methods you know the study design okay it's a it's a within group repeated measures that's why the sample size is low that makes sense that's not a limitation that's just you know given the structure everyone's their own control that makes sense okay now i go on to the the results okay i i don't really need to read it. i can look at the charts that's where the data is and then the discussion i see where maybe some of the bias is coming out and you know those those skills of familiarity with the paper reading process might take a year or two for you to develop of consistent effort. But after that, you can just peruse the JOSPT, pick up a paper here and there, and you know how to read it. You know how to get through it. Just because you can read the English language doesn't mean you read a paper and you understand it. You have to learn this new language, the language of research. And taking the time to learn that, I think, like you highlighted, you know, everything that you kind of said was related to research in some capacity. And the reality is you don't want to probably go 40 years 
relying on other people telling you what the research says. Exactly. You, know, you want to be able to, to decide for yourself what the research says. So you're not at the, you know, at the whims of what other people are telling you is the truth. Uh, I'm way too skeptical to ever believe that someone's actually telling me the truth. I want to know what they're using to inform that decision. And then I'll go read that stuff and, and make the decision myself. And I think, again, that's a mindset that's fostered in residency and fellowship with challenging your bias. But I think that trying to develop that mindset on your own, for me, um, looking out at you know folks who are trying to think of alternative ways to continue to educate themselves without having to do a residency or a fellowship, that that seems to be where I would encourage people to put a lot of their focus, kind of like like what you alluded to. Um, so Brandon, we're we're running on close to fifty minutes here. Um, is there are there any ways that people can get in touch with you? You know, either social media or uh, email where you practice that type of stuff that you want to drop in here. So I honestly, I use social media kind of as a, as a way to learn. I haven't developed posting or doing anything like that in terms of my own stuff. Um, uh, basically the best way to reach me is just bfredhoff at gmail.com. Um, just my first initial last name at Gmail. Um, yeah, just with any, any question on people trying to go into these things, I think you should be asking people that have gone through it. And you shouldn't just ask one person. You should try to gather all the details. Ask multiple people. Everybody's going to have different takes. Was it worth it? Is it? Do you think I should do it? What are some of the pros, cons, all that stuff? And they can even, with financial questions, all that, it's, it's just a good thing. So, um, yeah, I work in uh, at Breakthrough Physical Therapy in Marlton, New Jersey, um, right near Philadelphia. So uh, I'm open to any emails, questions about anything, and uh, – I appreciate you having me on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll uh, drop your email and your, you know, breakthrough clinic profile page in the show notes. So if anyone's wanting to reach out to you and didn't know how to spell anything or whatever, so that'll be in the show notes. uh, If anyone needs to get in touch with you. Um, Other than that, we appreciate everyone out there listening. We'll talk to you guys in the next one. Thank you for listening to the Training Room Talk podcast. We hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab. If you don't know where to go from here, please reach out to us with questions. We have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.